Welcome back. We continue our series in Far From the Shallow, and we come to a very interesting story in chapters 6 through 9 of the book of Genesis. Sometimes the oldest tales have the deepest wisdom. Sometimes the oldest tales have the deepest wisdom. Most of us know the story of Noah, the ark, and the flood. It's one of the most famous and I might say the most controversial passages in the entire Bible. The story, as you know, centers around a global cataclysm and a floating wooden zoo, and it has captured the imagination of people for many, many centuries. But until more modern times, Christians assumed that the story was trying to tell us that there was an actual worldwide event that happened in the relatively recent past, and it's a worldwide flood, and there's an argument as to if this is historical or not. Sometimes, through the discovery of modern science, as well as the exposition of the scriptures, what we can find is that sometimes we have to reevaluate some of our most beloved reading of the text. And that's the case, I think, today. The scientific and historical evidence is now clear that it is quite unlikely that there has ever been a global flood that covered the entire earth. Nor do modern animals and human beings descend from passengers on a single vessel. So, what is this text trying to teach us? The story of Noah and the ark is more than a story about divine vengeance, but it's actually a parable, in many ways, of God's plan to destroy violence and to restore all of creation. The Bible is a record of encounters that Almighty God and humans reflect their understanding of the world as it is. Biblical scholar John Walton says this about the book of Genesis. The Bible was written for all of us, but it was not written to us. In other words, it has its own context. And in that context, we gain meaning from what the text is telling us. Now, the most familiar parts of the Bible are often the parts that we have the hardest time reading through ancient eyes. And that is the case today. If there is any story in the entire Bible that has filled more coloring books, it is probably Noah and the ark. Because who doesn't like a boat with animals going up two by two? Who doesn't like a rainbow at the end? It's very, very, uh, you know, heartwarming. But if you look at the text closely, it's not a children's story, not at all. It is presented to children in such a way that they kind of fall in love with the animals and the ark and the rainbow. But maybe that's not the best way to teach our children about this story. The flood story really is a horrific moment in Genesis that is showing us that the human experiment has failed. The human experiment has failed. 
And it seems as though God is suggesting that there is only one possible solution. So God, very early in the story, we're only at chapter 6 of Genesis, I'm telling you. You know, so you start in creation in chapter 1 and 2, and by chapter 6, you're all ready to blow it up and start all over again. So why would a loving God and the master designer of the cosmos want to blow everything up? If he knew what was going to happen, why would he create in the first place? Maybe there's something else that's going on in the text. Because we all must deal with this story and the question that comes with it. And that is, what do you do with a genocidal God? What do you do with a God that is that willing to destroy everyone except one family and some animals? Well, this is one of those stories where leaving the modern world and entering into the ancient world is absolutely essential. So the flood, in many respects, represents the potential extinction of mankind. There's three things I want you to keep in mind. When you read the story of Noah and the ark, I want you to keep these three things in mind. Number one, the story of the flood seems to be rooted in history. The way it's told, it seems as though something happened. Now, many biblical scholars relying upon uh, geological findings believe that at some point in history, there was a, a great deluge in the southeastern Mesopotamian region along the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And they believe this happened around 2900 BCE. And that then triggered many flood stories in many civilizations. Actually, if you did a Wikipedia search on a flood, a worldwide flood, or at least a great flood, you would find that stories arise out of Africa and the Middle East. Even Native Americans in our own homeland have a story of a flood. So it seems as though something happened, but remember the book of Genesis comes together quite late. And so if it has its final form, after they come back from exile in Babylon, that means this story has been told verbally over many centuries. Actually, this story by the time of King David is probably already 2,000 years old. And it's been told over and over and over again. So, number one, there does seem to be something that happened in history. Number two, keep in mind, that the story of Noah and the flood, though it is rooted in history, is also rooted in legends. So there is a story of a great flood called the Epic of Gilgamesh. And it far predates the story of Genesis about the flood. This story is told among ancient people over and over again. And what we find is this much older story than the Genesis tale, the Epic of Gilgamesh, tells us about a flood. But the reason for the flood is different than the one that we're told in Genesis. I'll come back to that in a moment. So, number one, keep in mind, it seems to be rooted in history, at least a localized flood of some sort. Number two, Keep in mind that even though it's rooted in history, it is also accompanied by legends. And number three, 
Reading the flood story of Genesis does not tell us so much what happened, but is telling us what the Israelites believed about their God. In other words, it's a statement of theology more than a statement of history. So have you noticed that God keeps wanting to start over? So Adam and Eve mess it up, and he's going to start over with Noah. And then when we move ahead a couple of weeks from now into the story of Abraham, God's starting over again. And then by the time you get to Jesus, Jesus is creating a new community of people that he calls the church, and he seems to be starting over again. This is a pattern that we find all through Scripture. So reading the flood story is some type of belief among the ancient Israelites. Now, whenever you have to deal with theology, many times it's not laid out for us in black and white. We've got to do a little bit of investigation, and we've got to read between the lines a little bit. So the reason given in Genesis for the need to start over is human wickedness. But in the text, what we find is it's a specific kind of wickedness. And we're told in chapter 6, verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. The reason for the flood in the ancient Israel mind is that God is going to correct the problem of the multitude of violent acts that are going on in humanity. Now, what's interesting is the word that is used for violence here. Let me lay a little Hebrew on you. It is the word kamas. And it's a word that describes cold-hearted, cold-blooded, uh, unscrupul unscrupulous activity that's using power, that's using violence, using hatred as a way to get to an end. So according to this text, the violence of men is destroying the creation. And if you look closely at the text in chapter 6, verse 6, we're actually told about how God feels about this. So in verse 5 of chapter 6, it says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. But it's a specific kind of evil. It's violence. Then it says in verse 6, The Lord regretted that he made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. God is grieving. His heart is heavy because all of this is going on in the creation. Now, the only way you can understand this as a statement of theology is if you understand why in the Epic of Gilgamesh, that God sent a flood on the face of the earth. So in the Epic of Gilgamesh, this God called Enlil sent a flood because he was irritated that human beings were too noisy and he couldn't get his sleep. Think about that for a moment. So you're going to destroy the human race because you didn't have a good night's sleep. Now, if we all did that, none of us would have kids, right? Because they disrupt our sleep all the time. No, in the biblical account, in the biblical account, God is concerned about the unraveling of creation. The flood is perceived as a judgment from a God as a result of unchecked escalation of violence. So this 
is a contrast to the other stories that are being told during their day. You see, the flood in many ways is symbolic of what violence does. It unravels creation. It destroys living things. The flood represents all that went wrong when people use kamas, this Hebrew word, violence. So we might be asking the wrong question when we read this text. Instead of asking the question, why would God commit genocide? In other words, he's going to stop violence by violence. Maybe we should be asking the question, why is this a step forward? In the mind of the Israelites, now you must remember that they are thinking in their own day and age and in their own mindset and in their own culture. And so if they believe that the gods, plural, are easily angered, and if they had been told, and we're going to see that Abraham comes out of a region of Babylon when God calls him, uh, and then next week we're going to see the Tower of Babel, that it seems as though where there is this pantheon of gods, they're easily angered, and they're always out to hurt those that they created. Well, this is a great step forward theologically. The Israelites believed that God was not out to get them because of their sins of omission uh, or their sins of commission, but rather God saw the potential of evil growing and growing and growing, and in their mind they believed that is the one and only reason that God has justification to start over again, to destroy the earth and start over again. So you see, it's a different kind of theology than the nations that are surrounding them. It's not a perfect theology at all. It's a beginning theology that will continue to progress over thousands of years until you get to the time of Jesus. And actually, Jesus tells us to love our enemies, not destroy them. So it's fascinating to me where the Bible starts off, how it reflects the ancient mindset, and then move forward. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago um, when Corey was talking about Cain and Abel, he also mentioned in passing this guy by the name of Lamech. And in chapter 4, Lamech is a descendant of Cain, and what he, we find is he continues to perpetuate this violence. Now listen to what he says. Lamech has two wives, and he says to them, Ada and Zillah, Listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. In other words, he's escalating violence. 70 times seven? Do you remember that statement by Jesus? Here is a man that's doing 70 times violence, and Jesus is telling us to forgive 70 times seven after he had been asked, how many times must I forgive someone who has hurt me? In other words, to continue the lineage of Lamech would lead to the obliteration of the human race. And so there is this ongoing problem, and the story of Noah 
is the story of how we escape obliteration. And the way to do it is by entering the ark. Entering the ark of God. So, when Noah enters the ark, and of course, there's a lot of detail. You're given dimensions of the ark. You're given uh, the commandment for uh, Noah to bring in animals. There are to be seven pairs of clean animals. And then the unclean animals, there's to be one pair that's brought in. Um, it's fascinating to me that um, in many ways, after the flood re uh, recedes, that God tells Noah the very same thing he told Adam. Be fruitful, increase, and multiply. So if you were to look at Genesis chapter 1 and then Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, what you're finding is God is saying, hey, I am not done with this project. I want to start over. Here's what he says to Noah. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the earth. And the fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and all the fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. That's basically the same thing he told Adam, to have dominion over the earth. So when we think about this story, I think what we're thinking is, here is an individual represented in Noah who is not a man of violence, but he's a man of virtue. Now, he's not a perfect man. After the flood recedes, we find that he gets drunk and that his sons have to kind of back into the tent and put a blanket over him, and he curses his one son, uh, Canaan, and that becomes then a whole other problem of the Canaanite people. It gets really, really complicated. However, here's the deal. When God allows the flood to recede, it is Noah that sends out a bird to see if the land is dry. And the bird that he sends out is a dove. Fascinating. For in the story of Gilgamesh, the bird that is sent out of the boat is a raven. Fascinating. The biblical text is already kind of changing the story of Gilgamesh to communicate a different message. And so we find that God is choosing a man and his family that have a way of virtue to lead a new way into life. Now, that's not the end of the story. If you fast forward hundreds and thousands of years, Jesus is doing the same thing. God would choose another man to save humanity from its destructive waves. He, too, would be a man of virtue. In fact, he would be a blameless man. And it's fascinating to me that the invitation Noah gives it's an open invitation for people to listen to him, to come into the ark, and to find a new way of living. That invitation is the same nowadays in Jesus Christ. There's an open invitation for people to come into the ark and to find the safety and provision and love of God. You see, in the New Testament, to be in God's ark, 
is to be redeemed in Christ and become, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, a new creation in Christ. Creation language is used. So at the end of the Noah story, it's interesting that a rainbow is set as a sign of the covenant. Now, this will be the first of a number of signs that God makes a, a covenant with people. Of course, in the Abraham story, we'll find that the sign of the covenant is circumcision. All of this is to say God desires peace in the world before it is too late, before we obliterate ourselves. And I just love the end of the story of Noah, where he sends out a dove into a new world. Jesus, after his resurrection, sends his spirit into the world. You remember how the spirit was represented in the baptism of Jesus when he was baptized by John the Baptist? A dove comes down out of heaven and rests upon his shoulder and says, this is my beloved son. Oh, there's all kinds of parallels. It's fascinating. So what are we to do in a world that is filled with violence? What are we to do as people who are trying to pursue a better way? Well, we might say that we need to join arms. And we need to move forward, not alone, but arm in arm with other people into the ark that is provided by God, that is Jesus Christ, to show that there is a better way forward in this world. I'm going to close this message with a parable. I ran across this parable. Uh, there's a Jewish philosopher by the name of Gunther Anders, and it's a parable that he wrote that is using the Noah story as a picture of nuclear proliferation. In other words, we have the potential to eradicate ourselves. In other words, there are enough nuclear weapons to actually destroy all life on this planet. And so he wrote this parable. I want you to listen. It's in your liturgy. It says, soon a small crowd of curious people had gathered around him. That is Noah. They asked him questions. They asked if someone had died and who the dead person was. Noah replied to them that many had died. And then, to the great amusement of his listeners, said that they themselves were the dead of whom he spoke. When he was asked when this catastrophe had taken place, he replied to them, Tomorrow. Profiting from their attention and confusion, Noah drew himself up to his full height and said these words, The day after tomorrow, the flood will be something that will have been. And when the flood will have been, everything that is will never have existed. When the flood will have carried off everything that is, everything that will have been, it will be too late to remember, for there will be no longer, uh, for there will no longer be anyone alive. And so there will be no longer any difference between the dead and those who mourn them. 
if I have come before you, it is in order to reverse time, to mourn tomorrow's dead today. The day after tomorrow, it will be too late. With this, he went back, whence he had come. He took off the sackcloth that he had wore. He cleaned his face of the ashes that covered it, and he went to his workshop. That evening, a carpenter knocked on his door and said to him, Let me help you build the ark so that it may become false. Later, a roofer joined them, saying, It is raining over the mountains. Let me help you so that it may become false. That's found in Jean-Pierre Dupuis' uh, book called The Mark of the Sacred. That parable is very profound. Sometimes we think that life is cemented in faith. It is not. This past year, we have seen what a little virus can do to the entire world, right? Imagine, can you imagine that as violence continues to grow, and as we are on the edge of potentially nuclear fallout, can you imagine all of life that is so sacred in God's eyes that he keeps starting over and over again, that we have the chance, as the carpenter and the roofer said, to make that be false. Maybe this parable is telling us that we have the capacity as a human race to build an ark to save ourselves from obliteration. Actually, one has already been provided in Jesus Christ. And God promises he will help start a new world if we choose to enter the ark. If we choose to try to continue to help life continue. So how do we enter? We do it maybe two by two just like the animals on the ark. Maybe the animals are symbolic of entering the ark that allows humanity to survive and the potential to thrive. Maybe we join other people and we walk in the ways of peace rather than in the ways of violence. Well, who is that open to? Well, if we use the animals as a symbol, maybe we could say the clean and the unclean. It's for everyone to come aboard. You know, Jesus tells us wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. And that there's an interesting song that Corey told me about. And he, it's a uh, song that's called Two at a Time. And maybe the flood narrative marks a step forward in how God is understood and that is a process that we must still continue with. Let me say that again. So this big, long narrative, chapter 6 through 9 of Genesis, maybe what it's trying to tell us in our day and age, maybe we don't argue about things like, well, was the flood historical? Was the flood worldwide? Were the dinosaurs eradicated because they're too big to get on the ark? I mean, there's all kinds of questions out there. And maybe it doesn't get to the heart of the point. Maybe the flood narrative marks a step forward in how God is understood that his heart is grieved when humans mistreat each other, 
And that is a process of theology that continues over the centuries until we come to this day. And we ask ourselves, how do we enter this ark of peace? And how do we bring other people along with us so that the world can be a better place? Let's listen to the song, Two at a Time. <laughs> 